I wonder, have you ever seen the television show, Are You Being Served? Do you know this show? It was a British comedy series from the early 1970s and into the mid-80s, and it became pretty popular in the United States. I love watching it. The show takes place in a multi-storied London department store called Grace Brothers. Grace Brothers is a a very proper and formal store, and the show, though, is primarily about the eccentric characters who work in the store and all the comedic drama that they seem to create among themselves. Occasionally, a customer appears, often at the outset of the episode, and in one of my favorite episodes, the scene opens with a customer walking through the elevator doors with the customary ding of the doors, and he's asked by the store manager if he needs anything. The customer is happy and says, yes, I need some help finding a a sports coat. Will you help me find a sport coat? The store manager says, oh no, I can't help you with that, but I can certainly find someone who will. And the scene continues to unfold as the other workers from the men's department find ways to do everything but give this man, the customer, what he wants. It makes for some good humor, for sure, for everyone except that customer. He gets so exasperated. This man knows what he wants, and he's in the right place to get it, but he can't seem to get it. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You've gone looking for something. You want something. You you might even need something. Perhaps you're longing for it, but it always just seems out of reach. I've recently started going back to restaurants. I don't know about you, but I've started kind of easing back to going to restaurants for the first time in a long time, and it's been an, an adjustment for me a little bit for many reasons. For one, I've had to relearn the customs, right? I'm used to preparing my own food now, and you have to le- relearn the customs and the, and the habits and the practices of being in a restaurant. And it's, it's made me think about something I've actually thought a lot about in the past and something I've experienced many times. It's actually two things, variations of the same situation. Basically, either I fail to even glance at the menu before the, the server comes to ask what I want. I'm wrapped up in talking with someone or I'm distracted by something that's going on and the server comes over and says, do you know, do you know what you want? And I'm suddenly stunned. Sort of like in the middle of the Lord's Prayer when I don't know where I'm going. I'm just stunned. And I, I actually have no clue what I want, right? Or maybe I've been looking at the menu and I'm torn between a few items. And I might even have talked about that if I'm dining with people and I'll, I'll say, gosh, I really don't know whether I'm going to get this or that. And then they, they come back to take the order and I panic, right? Now I focus. I have to ask myself that question. What do you want? If you've ever dined out with Tom and Kay Kelly, they don't have to make that decision as much because they'll always order two entrees and then swap halfway through. And I kind of get a little jealous. I think, well, they got to pick two. Best of both worlds, right? A little less risk in the decision. Even though it's actually a little bit risky, right? Because, or, or it takes more work. Because like many decisions in any relationship, the individual question of what do I want becomes, well, what will she want half of? Or what will he enjoy? Now, luckily with Tom and Kay, they're both adventurous and they know each other quite well. But, but this question that we ask, this question, or really these questions, what would you like? Can I help you? 
These questions are at the root of our being as people. We think about them every day. Often, the first thing we think of when we wake up might be, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to do in my day? What do I want to do in my day? Who do I want to be? For Val, that meant getting a Harley Davidson, which I'm so excited about. I, could, I had to mention it. I saw it online, so I can't wait to see it out in the parking lot at some point. But this question, who am I? What am I doing? What do I want to be? So much of being a parent of, a, of an infant or a toddler, I, I've never done this before, but so much of it is trying to understand what they want or what they need especially when they're upset, or especially at the age where communication can be difficult. And the same goes for us throughout our lives, for grown-ups too. And I should never be surprised by this. When I, when I look at it, and this is so permeating of our lives, I should never be surprised that throughout Scripture, Scripture which captures the human experience in so many ways, throughout Scripture we see a reoccurrence of this, of this question, or at least this search. A question that we long to be asked, but also a question that we struggle to answer. What do you want? What do you want? What do you need? And it can merge into a larger, identity-defining question. Who are you? Who are you going to be? And so many related questions. A few weeks ago, we heard this, this question from Jesus to the blind beggar. We heard this question back at Easter, at the empty tomb, when the angel asks the disciples who are there, what, what do you want? What are you looking for? You see, we come upon questions like this throughout Scripture, but we also come upon something a little different. A version of this line of questioning can become, it can change into questions that can sound a little off-putting. It can almost feel rude, depending on the context and the inflection. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? I can almost hear that stern haberdasher from Are You Being Served asking the question. I won't give you a British accent today, but you can imagine it. What are you doing here? But I can also imagine the writer of this letter to the Hebrews asking that question. The letter to the Hebrews is a little different. It's different from the other letters in the New Testament. It isn't altogether clear what the original reason or format of this letter was. Many people think it was a sermon that was preached repeatedly to churches in that early first century. And others think it was more of a conventional letter written to be read in a variety of audiences to a wide range of people. What we do know is that it was written sometime after the resurrection to an early group of followers of Jesus. These followers had some background in the Hebrew Scriptures. They were likely many of them Jews, and they also had some knowledge of Greco-Roman philosophy, and we see a lot of that being woven together in this text. So these were early Christians who were straddling the old laws, and they were living into these new laws, these, this new way of being. 
And the writer of Hebrews recognizes throughout this letter, and we're right toward the end of the letter in this text today, but, but throughout the text acknowledges that there's some level of confusion, confusion about not only what it means to follow Jesus, but who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? And what is the church? What is the purpose? Why are we here? The birth pangs of this new church were very fresh. This was new. This was new to them. What are you doing here? Why are we gathered? Why are you gathered? The writer is wondering in a sense. What do you want? Are you being served? And so from the outset of the letter, the writer focuses on Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus for the writer of this letter. The question of who Jesus is and why does Jesus matter and what made Jesus different. Repeated throughout the book of Hebrews is this focus on Jesus in a way that doesn't appear anywhere else, calling Jesus a high priest. Now, in our Bible study this week, the word priest grabbed the attention of a lot of folks in the group. This is the only book, like I said, in the New Testament where the correlation is made of Jesus as a high priest. And the writer does this for a very specific reason that becomes more clear in the context of our text that Kathy read for us. Last week, we talked a bit about sacrifice, and in particular, we talked about people, not just in the Jewish tradition, but in other contemporaneous cultural and religious traditions, people who are responsible for the religious practice of sacrifice. In nearly all of those cultural traditions, there was a person or people, a role that was often referred to, no matter the religion, as a priest, a priest. Primarily a function in the form of the priest, a function of sacrifice, of making things holy, set apart. I called it leveling up last week, like the, the idea of taking something of value and, and getting something of greater value. The priests were these ones who would ask that question, what do you want? Or what are you doing here? And then they'd listen to the needs of the people and turn around and bring them before the deity from which that person sought something, sought favor or or forgiveness or something. You see, in each of these traditions, again, whether whether it's the Jewish tradition or other traditions, there was a theme of repetition, though. We see it in the start of our text this morning. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, every priest stands day after day, at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. It sounds terrible, like repetition over and over and over again. But, but really what's going on here is he's pointing out that these sacrifices that the priests were doing in the, in the temple, these sacrifices had a limitation. They could only do so much. And that's part of why they had to be there over and over and over and over again. Not because they weren't good at what they were doing, but because there wasn't that much power in what they were doing. They were doing the best they could, but it was never enough. How often do we experience that in our lives? Doing the best we can, but it's never enough. But Jesus is different. Jesus, the one who who the writer of Hebrews says comes from this long line of priests, is something different altogether. And the writer of Hebrews is telling those early followers and trying to tell us, 
just who Jesus is. He's, he's trying to reveal more of what I've called that mystery of Jesus. And, and throughout this letter, he tells of the ways that Jesus is descended from God and that Jesus is descended from the angels, and that Jesus is the very face of God that we get to look into, and that Jesus, this high priest, has walked among humanity and suffered among humanity in order to conquer and overcome death and to be the ultimate, one, last, final sacrifice. A one-time sacrifice, unlike all those imperfect sacrifices of the priests, the high priest of Jesus has become the perfect, perfect as in complete or full, the full, complete, perfect sacrifice for sins. He writes, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice. But then there's, there's more, you see, there's more Because so much of our human existence and the the human quest for, for thousands of years has been a quest to appease God or to appease gods. No matter the religions, nearly all religions have some component of not just following rules, but of appeasing gods. So many religions, and this this goes back to the times of the earliest documentation of people living in caves. So many religious practices, pursuits of the divine, whatever you want to call them, have been transactional in some way. They've focused on the transactional nature of the relationship between the divine and the human. And throughout those transactions, it's, it's like that practice of over and over and over and over and over again, trying to appease God. The writer of Hebrews says that we not only will never be able to do that, we'll never be able to do it. We'll never be able to do it. We'll never be able to transact our way into God's love. Not only will we never be able to do it, but we don't have to do it. We don't have to do it. We don't have to. We don't have to be like the ones who seek to work their way into God's grace. We don't have to buy our way into God's love. And even more so, the distance, the separation, the the separation that was created out of confusion, but also created out of power, separation that was created through systems of division and oppression, a a play-to-pay access, the, the separation that was created, though most of all, by human sin. That division that was created between humanity and God is gone. This was huge. This is religion changing. This is history changing. Now, in the case of the early church, the divisions that we're talking about took the form of the temple curtain. On on one side, this is an actual physical barrier. On one side were the people, on one side was God. And the priests were the ones who could go between. They could go literally behind the curtain. The, The presence of God was thought to be behind the curtain. And the people depended on the priests. They needed the priests to go do their bidding on the other side of the curtain to connect them to the divine. These transactions, access, appeasing God. 
But in our text today, did you catch this? We read that Jesus opened the curtain. Jesus opened the curtain. He ended the divisions that humans, regardless of their geography or their time in history, their religions, the divisions that throughout time humans have tried to bridge on their own only to be left still separated by sin and by human limitations. And the good news of Jesus Christ good news of Jesus Christ is that the separation is over. The curtain is torn. The divisions of sin, of separation from God, that division has been bridged. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that we celebrate when we gather to worship, and it is the good news for you, the good news for me, the good news for all of humankind. Good news because it is the message of a God who makes each of us holy who makes you and me sacred in God's eyes. You are sacred in God's eyes. Good news because it's the message of a God who does for us all the things that humanity has tried to do for itself and that we are often conditioned to try to do. We are conditioned to earn. We are conditioned to accomplish, to follow rules. And God's revolutionary claim on our lives is a claim of forgiveness and a claim of costless love. I think sometimes it would be easier for us if we had more rules. I like rules. I tend to follow them most of the time. It would be easier if there was a price tag of forgiveness, maybe a list of things we could do to achieve it. Or a list of ways we could obtain freedom from sin through certain steps. But in Christ, we're given this radical news. This radical news that we've been made both holy and without sin. That God's faithfulness to us is a gift from God. Not the result of our own actions or our own work, but a gift. Not something we have to earn or to qualify for. So what's the key? What's the point? The writer of Hebrews writes that because of this good news, because of this good news, that, that the, the good news that we cannot repeat often enough, the good news of Jesus Christ, because of this, we have the confidence to enter into the sanctuary, the confidence to approach God, the confidence to enter into God's presence not because of ourselves, not because of anything we've done, but because that one who asks us, what do you want? That one who looks at us and knows us, that one high priest has opened the curtain, has paved the way for you and for me to oneness with God. And through this assurance of God's love for us, God's unconditional embrace of us, We are able to confidently come before God, and and in doing that, we confess our sins because we we know that that God has forgiven us and that God will continue. The, The freedom to be honest before God helps us to be more vulnerable with God because we can do so without fear of punishment. The, The reassurance of knowing God's love for us enables us to be frank and honest 
before the God who welcomes us. But coming full circle, why are we here? What are we doing here? Why are we in worship? Why do we worship together? All of this love that God has shown to us in Christ, the opening of the curtain, the invitation to come before God in confidence, all of this mystery, all of it, is lived more fully and deeply when we live as God calls us to live, in community with one another. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He writes that we're to have confidence in God's love for us, and then in our lives, he writes, let us consider how to provoke one another. Provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet, one, to meet one, together, encouraging one another. Let me read that again. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. That word provoke is so interesting, isn't it? It's a strong word. Other ways uh, that the word has been translated have been spur, like to, to spur on one another or to spark one another to love and good deeds. I, I like those. I also like provoke, though. I think we have a negative connotation most of the, of the time, a, a negative connotation of provocation, right? But that negative connotation helps me remember that even in the friction or the tension that can happen when we're in relationship, even in the provocation, there can be movement toward love. No matter the word, the idea is the same. We're called to be a church because we're called to be that spark in one another's lives. That spark to bring us closer to living God's love in the world. Together we spur one another on and learn who God is and what God has done for us. And what God continues to do to transform the lives of others around us and to transform us We're called to worship together, to pray together, to cry together. We're called to stumble through life together, not just filling pews, but sharing our hearts, sharing who we are, provoking one another to love. That's the church. This is the church that Jesus died for. You are the ones that Jesus suffered for so that your own suffering, your own pain, your struggles, all of it, all that you experience in your life would be understood by God and redeemed and made holy. And so we journey together, approaching God with confidence, approaching God with confidence. And our journey begins again and again and again in worship together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.